Okay, Revelation chapter 12. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the, for the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the, power, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He's filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who'd given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert, where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time. Out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away uh, with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river and the dragon um, that the dragon had spewed from his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. There we go. Revelation chapter uh, chapter 12. Um, so what do we have here? A woman who's about to give birth, who later on is given wings so that she might escape the dragon. Uh, the dragon is pursuing the woman and wants to, to devour the child that's about to be born. Uh, the child is snatched up to heaven. There just happens to be a war in heaven, uh, but the dragon is hurled down and um, uh, and the, the woman is, is rescued, and even the earth comes to her aid. So, not much for me to comment on, really. <laughs> Again, we encounter the, the wonder of apocalyptic language, language that is so rich in, uh, in vivid imagery and symbols that at first look it can seem puzzling to us because it's a type of language that we don't really uh, use that much now. We, we might use more, more scientific language, uh, for example, to describe what's really going on. And you might have noticed as you came out this morning, there's a slight chill in the air that a few weeks ago uh, wasn't there. Um, and it's probably set to get colder 
But sometimes we might try and describe the fact that it was cold. And we say, this morning, it's cold. Well, that's a fairly bland way of describing something. We might say, oh, it was so cold that it was, uh, it was minus one degrees. Okay, well, we've gone for a more kind of factual and scientific description. Another way of saying it is, if it's really cold, is I opened the door this morning and there was Frosty the snowman. He sneezed in my face, put a hand inside my jumper and tickled me under the ribs. <laughs> it was really cold. Um, so when we read language here in Revelation chapter 12, it's, it uses fantasy, really. It uses highly symbolic and bizarre-sounding uh, imagery to make important point. Now, for us, living basically, or for some of us, should I say, living basically a comfortable and encouraging life, we might read this book and think the book is puzzling, the book of Revelation even frightening uh, when we read this chapter. It's important to bear in mind then that for the original hearers of John's book here, the book of Revelation, it was completely the other way around. Actually, it was life that was puzzling. And it was life that was even frightening. Um, because they were subject to persecution. They were, they were vulnerable. They lived in, a, in the Roman world and in different parts, different times, Roman authorities would crack down on religions that didn't have kind of an official seal of approval. And, uh, and Christianity did not have um, that seal uh, in the eyes of the Roman authorities. And so um, believers in Jesus weren't worshipping Caesar as they should do. And so in some places, as we read earlier, we can, uh, we can see it in some of the messages to the churches that John wrote to in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. They're really under the cosh. Life was puzzling. Life was even frightening. This book... Very, very encouraging for reasons that we'll see as we go through. So this book is written to encourage. It's written to strengthen the faith of God's people. And it grants us heaven's perspective. It gives us heaven's point of view on what's really going on. And so chapter 12 kind of gives us a behind-the-scenes look at the life of the church involved in spiritual conflict. So on the earth, the church is encountering hostility from Roman authorities and accusations are coming their way, slander. Maybe there are some believers who are losing their business because they're no longer going along to the temple to worship uh, Caesar and other gods where business was done. And so they're becoming poor and some of them are dying for their faith as well. Chapter 12 gives us a, a behind the scenes look, a heaven's perspective on what's really going on. Now, so we're, we could be puzzled for the language, we could be forgiven for thinking who, what, why, how, uh-huh. but in fact this is a very, very encouraging book of the Bible. And so if we're thinking who, what, why, how, uh-huh, let's actually look at those questions. First of all, who? Who's here? Who is in chapter 12? First of all, we're introduced to uh, the woman. A woman who's about to give birth. And if we think of significant Bible characters who are pregnant and about to give birth to someone significant, we might immediately think, with Christmas just around the corner, of Mary. 
and some might go there. But it's, it's clear from this chapter and, and from elsewhere, this is talking about God's people um, in their entirety. So uh, jo- uh, Joseph was one of uh, Israel's 12 sons. And in Genesis chapter 37, he has a dream where he sees the sun and the stars and the moon bowing down to him. And his brothers understand that to mean, are you really trying to say that our mother and all of us, 11 brothers, are going to bow down to you? Now those 12 sons then became the 12 tribes of Israel. And so when we hear uh, that the woman was clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and with a crown of 12 stars on her head, it's like a way of saying God's people. All the people descended from Israel. And later on, maybe she kind of morphs slightly to mean God's new covenant people uh, in, under the new, the new Testament. So we have the woman here, God's people, and then a dragon. The dragon described in verse 3, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. So a completely bizarre fantasy figure is a dragon. Also, it's got any number of heads and all the rest of it. Now, actually, this is he is slightly easier to identify because he's described in verse verse nine as the great dragon, but also described as that ancient serpent. That ancient serpent, does that ring any bells? Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are in the garden and they are deceived by who? A serpent, a snake, who's come to ruin God's work. Uh, Also called uh, the devil and Satan. So it's not too tricky to identify him. And uh, we've also had him described a few chapters earlier, in fact, in, in Revelation 9 and verse 11. Describes there... Um, the one who is king over the angel of the abyss, um, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon. Now you're forgiven for not knowing Hebrew uh, or Greek, as am I. Those two names mean destroyer. And the the dragon, as we see, is completely out to destroy. It describes in verse 4 how his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Some... um, uh, some wonder whether that means that uh, when Satan fell, um, he took a third of the angels with him who also fell and became um, evil spirits or demons. To which all we can really say is, well, maybe, uh, but maybe not. Um, the point is that Satan here, described as a dragon, is powerful, violent, full of rage and hatred towards God. And therefore, he wants to destroy God's work. So who's put the stars in the sky? God has. Who wants to destroy God's handiwork? Satan does. It reflects something of God's glory and full of pride and hostility towards God. Um, Satan is a destroyer. Now, it's important as we consider this that, again, we, we think this book is here for our encouragement It's not here to frighten us. And perhaps through history, the church can make one of two mistakes. One mistake is to focus on 
Satan and evil spirits and, um, and, and darkness, spiritual conflict in that sense, focus on it too much. Get almost preoccupied. Um, everything that happens uh, is put down to evil spirits, even if there's like a thunderstorm. Oh, well, you know, there must be a battle in the heavenlies tonight. No, that's, that's simply rubbish. Um, a scientist could explain it better than I can. But, you know, we actually need rain. It's kind of helpful sometimes that we have thunderstorms. Um, so we don't want to get over-focused, over-preoccupied, because that can actually lead down a path of fear, where we're kind of giving Satan too much attention and too much credit, almost seeing him on a par with God, which he isn't. God is in a category of one. Everything else is something that he's created. But the second mistake is that we don't give enough attention and that we can be outwitted um, by Satan and his schemes and we don't want to be ignorant of them. So we need to strike the right balance. That what was, that's hopefully what we'll achieve today. So uh, the woman, God's people, the dragon, Satan, set against God, wants to destroy God's work, and the male child. Um, clearly, this is Jesus who was born. Uh, Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 9, uh, For to us a son is given, a child is born, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, um, Everlasting Father, uh, Prince of Peace, and so on. So uh, to the people of God comes a saviour. They couldn't, as it were, produce salvation themselves. They couldn't muster it up, but God gives a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was born and he was destined to rule. Other kingdoms come and go, but Jesus is the king forever. So this son is born, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Other nations will crumble, they'll appear impressive for a while, earthly kingdoms and powers and rulers and authorities um, but they are destined for destruction. Jesus is the king forever, whose rule is firm and unbreakable like iron. And again, as we said before, you want to sum up the message of the book of Revelation, we can say it in two words, God wins. There's this vicious, devouring dragon. There's this, this child who's born, apparently vulnerable to attack. But he is the king, and his kingdom will never be thwarted. He wins, and he is Jesus. So that's the who. Our next question is what? What is being described here? What are we being told about? We'll be told this. This passage is describing victory over the dragon. The woman gives birth to the child. The dragon, the destroyer, is poised. He is completely focused on attempting to devour this child as soon as he is born. Now remember, we're being given here heaven's perspective, and actually heaven's perspective on real events that happen. So um, we know that when Jesus was born, as a baby he was vulnerable, because another earthly king discovered that he'd been born and set out to kill him. We find out in Matthew and, and chapter 2 and verse 16. When Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, 
He was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time uh, he'd learned from the Magi. In other words, the Magi had come to town, the wise men, they were seeking this new king uh, that they'd seen in the stars had been born. And so they came to the palace and they said to, to Herod, well, well, where is he? Because we've come to worship him. A new king? Well, Herod wasn't best pleased about that. And that is his evil plan to try and, dis- uh, to try and destroy uh, Jesus in his infancy. So in a sense, the Bible gives us two explanations of what was going on there. On the one hand, Satan was, uh, in the one hand, King Herod was seeking to kill any so-called other king uh, in his realm. One explanation. The other explanation is that Satan wanted to destroy God's one and only son. The two explanations equally valid. It goes to show how Satan is keen to find people who will cooperate with his plan. And he found Herod willing to do so in this, uh, in this situation. So, the dragon is attempting to devour God's son, but the child is snatched up to God. The child is born and is snatched up to God and to his throne. That is quite a phenomenal verse, because there we have described Jesus, birth, and then his ascension, straight away. In between that is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the very beginning of the book of Acts. Um, but John cuts right to the chase. He says, yeah, he was born, and we know that he ministered, and he walked life on this earth, and he had disciples, and he taught, and he brought parables, and he healed the sick, and he raised the dead, um, and he encountered hostility from uh, Jewish authorities, and he went to Jerusalem, and there uh, everything kind of reached its climax, and he was crucified, but he couldn't stay uh, in the grave, death could not keep hold of him, he rose from the grave three days later, uh, now son of God in power, no longer in any kind of vulnerability, he meets with his disciples, he explains the word of God to them more fully, and then he ascends to heaven. John says, the child was born, and he was snatched up to heaven. In other words, Satan's attempt to destroy, Satan's attempt to devour, Satan's attempt to thwart uh, the kingdom purposes of God, utterly, utterly made futile. They looked successful for a moment, because Jesus did actually go to the cross. He did actually die on the cross. His death was completely certified. He didn't just swoon there. He, he really died but he was really raised to life three days later and therefore he is now snatched up he's taken up to God and to his throne Jesus is the one who's ruling and reigning Jesus is the one who stepped down from heaven who left the throne and came down made himself vulnerable Satan is the one who desperately wants to sit on that throne and so he seeks all he can to thwart God's plan and kill God's son. But his plan is utterly thwarted, and the Lord Jesus, who stepped down from the throne, is rightly raised again, ascends to heaven, and as we saw in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation, rightly takes his 
throne. So, in a sense, what happens in this chapter? The complete defeat of the dragon. He is hurled down and loses his place in heaven. There's, there's a battle, but the victory is assured. The dragon and his angels uh, attempt to resist the inevitable, but it comes to them. That great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devon, devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. They were defeated. Complete crushing defeat for Satan. Total victory for Jesus. And therefore we get this loud declaration in verse uh, 10 and onwards. This incredibly bold, confident assertion. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. In other words... As we said before, God wins. And this victory was won at the cross. We can see it in other places as well, described by Paul, for example, in the book of Colossians, saying that what the, uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus um, achieved. We see in Colossians in chapter 2, uh, reading from verse 13, When you were dead in your sins and in the un- uncircumcision of your sinful nature... God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It's a complete victory. The powers and authorities that are spoken of here, that are... uh, are given in symbolic language here as the dragon and his angels. Uh, they are made a public spectacle of. They are triumphed over completely and utterly defeated. That is good news, don't you think? <laughs> so we've seen who, we've seen what is described here. We want to find out as well, well, why is this being outlined? Why is this being described to us in this way. What does this mean for us? Why is this particularly encouraging for God's people who originally heard this letter uh, back in the first century and for God's people uh, today and here? Well, it's important, as I said at the outset, that we don't get outwitted by Satan's uh, tactics. Uh, the Bible uh, doesn't try to uh, explain or, dis- or kind of um, defend the existence of a spiritual realm. It assumes it. It knows it. Um, uh, it would be us who are unusual just for thinking the world is a material place. Everything that exists is just what we can simply uh, touch or see or taste or smell. Well, actually, there is a spiritual realm Uh, that we need to be not preoccupied with, but certainly aware of. And one of Satan's schemes, whilst he is um, kind of very blatantly described here, a lot of his schemes, a lot of his tactics to undermine God's kingdom and undermine God's people are are subtle um, in the way they come about. 
And one of the tactics he has that we need to just consider for a moment is the whole area of accusation. The word devil means slanderer. The word Satan means adversary. Someone who stands opposed. Someone who's bringing accusations. And so uh, in the Old Testament, the word Satan began to be used to describe the spirits that accuses people before God. That's what he is keen to do. That's his um, one of his primary occupations. And we see how relentless he is in verse 10, because the accuser is described as the one who accuses them before our God day and night. He is focused on bringing accusation. An accusation um, for us can come in different forms. For the people originally receiving this letter, it could come in different ways. We see that it could actually come through other people. So, for example, you might remember back to the message to the church in Smyrna in chapter 2 and in verse 9. There's a church there and they are impressively faithful and steadfast, maintaining their uh, their testimony. Um, and so Jesus speaks to them there and he says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And we saw there how people living in that town in, in Smyrna were being accused. They were being slandered. There were people who were saying, oh, this new sect that would be known as Christianity It's nothing to do with traditional uh, Judaism. And so they've got nothing to do with us. They're not allowed in the synagogue. They are not God's people. And therefore the the Roman authorities would say, right, okay, well, Judaism, we we kind of uneasily live with. But you, um, well, persecution and ultimately uh, death for many of them as well as poverty and affliction in their, in their daily lives. All because of accusations that were brought by other people. So accusations can come from people's lips. That's what Satan's looking to do. He's, he's, he's looking to find, who, who can he find who will cooperate with his plan to bring accusation? And we even find, you know, he, he's on the lookout. Um, and we see elsewhere in the Gospels that he, he manages to persuade Judas to betray Jesus. He even manages to persuade, uh, Peter, um, not to bring accusation so much, but just to, to speak Satan's agenda. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. What you're saying to me, where, you know, where's it coming from? Because it's not coming from God. It's not coming from a healthy, holy, wholesome source is coming from an enemy that wants to knock Jesus uh, or knock Jesus' kingdom off track. That's what the enemy wants to do through accusation. But it doesn't only come in those ways. And I wonder if it, it comes to us more often in another way. It comes to us from our own thoughts. Accusation coming to God's people can just mean uh, feelings of worthlessness, Inferiority, not being qualified 
And so in our minds, we can start to separate, separate out God's kingdom, God's people into special believers for whom God has purposed great and significant things. And then ordinary believers like me, who are somewhat just put up with and set to one side. Accusations come in, in the form of thoughts. I don't really fit in. My contribution is not valid. We can be preoccupied with our past. We can be preoccupied with old sins. And that can be a way in which accusing thoughts develop in our mind. Things that have long since been repented of. But still somehow kind of loom large in our rear view mirror. We're wanting to drive forwards. But we keep seeing almost driving too close behind us. An old life. Old sins. Old acts. Old behavior. It's been repented of, but we're still churning it over in our minds. We're still thinking, I, I regret that. And you know, maybe thinking those, those years that have been misspent. When I was actually just turned away from God. Doing my own thing. Living my own way. Oh, how I wish that I could turn back the clock and change that. How I wish that if only I, I hadn't chosen that path. And, and those years, they could have been spent far more fruitfully living for God's kingdom. And that might be true. But the enemy's agenda is to bring an accusation that gets us to just dwell on the past. Now, if we confess our sin, we acknowledge it and we confess it, we're forgiven and we're cleansed from all unrighteousness. And we're qualified in God's kingdom. That's what God wants to remind us of. The enemy wants to do something very different. He wants to constantly plug away. Reminding us of regrets. Reminding us of the past. Reminding us of or trying to persuade us of personal worthlessness, inferiority. You're not an eye. You're an ear. You know, there are parts of the body and maybe, maybe they feel, yeah, in the thick of things and thoroughly involved. And God's got plans for them. Oh, but I'm, I'm just a foot. Well, no, don't think like that. Whatever part of the body God has made you to be, it's with purpose. There are no kind of, there's no appendix in the kingdom of God, in the body of Christ. There's no worthless part that's just a source of problem. If your appendix, you only become aware of your appendix when it's a problem. There's no part of the body of Christ. There's no part of God's people. There's no person saved from death to life brought into God's kingdom, who is like that, an appendix. You only notice them when they're a problem. That's not God's way. That's not God's kingdom. Sometimes the root of accusation can be, maybe for people who've been walking with Jesus for some time. For them, it's not so much a case of looking back into the past and seeing misspent years and a rebellious life that they now regret. It might just be looking in the present and comparing themselves Comparing ourselves with other people. Comparing ourselves with um, other believers. Other people who in our eyes look so good. Look so sorted. So confident. We start to compare ourselves with others. And it becomes a source of discouragement. Well I can understand how God would use them. But their testimony is amazing. They're such a source of encouragement. 
and uh, the way they serve in whatever capacity or whatever. We can, and rather than thanking God, we can get discouraged. We think, well, of course, I'm, I'm not like that. And God couldn't use me in that way. I guess, metaphorically speaking at least, I will sit on the back row. No offense to you guys who are actually sat on the back row. But metaphorically speaking, I'm, I'm taking a back seat here. I, I'm prepared to believe that God will use my brothers and sisters. But I'm not prepared to step out of my comfort zone to serve God with what he has given to me. Because I just feel low. I feel I feel down, and I've, the problem is, I've begun to believe the accusations. I've begun to believe what's being said just in my own mind. So, you know, the thought that presents itself, that for whatever reason, God in some way is frowning on me. The result is miserable Christianity. And then you can see straight away what a clever tactic Simply bringing accusations to God's people is for Satan to pursue. Because if Satan pursues this tactic and succeeds, and just bringing this general sense of inferiority through accusations, his church can begin to look a bit dour and a bit miserable, which is the very opposite of the attractive group, the attractive bride of Christ, that will cause others to think, wow, I've heard the message of Jesus, but I'm also seeing it in in people's lives, and I'm I'm seeing it does actually make a difference. No, I'm not. I'm seeing miserable believers who've been outwitted uh, by this tactic of accusation. And we can so we can wonder, is God somehow going to be persuaded? that these accusations that the enemy has brought hold water in some way. Am I I going to be found out, in other words? Now, if that at all kind of registers with you, please pay attention to this next little part. In the Old Testament, there are occasions when it appears like Satan has access to heaven to bring accusations. And we see, we see one of those examples in the book of Job. Uh, Job is living a righteous life. There's no one else like him in godliness and purity and the way in which he pleases God. And what happens, uh, without going into absolutely the whole book, which would take us a while, uh, Job chapter 1 verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. So there we have this scene that we're presented with in the book of Job. There's almost like this, this, this heavenly courtroom. Again, earlier in the book of Revelation, we've seen God's throne room in its glorious majesty and splendor. And it would appear there that in the book of Job, um, the, the, the angels are gathering to God on the throne and Satan is allowed to go too. So there he is in the throne room of God. And where is he? But when he's been down on the earth, he's been roaming to and fro and he's found Job. 
And he's come ready and prepared to bring an accusation against this guy Job, which basically runs along the line of, Job only worships you and he only follows you because his life is cushy. You've made his life so comfortable, God. He's got everything he could possibly want or need. Of course, it's easy to follow you in those situations. But take it all away, and I promise you, he'll curse you to his face. That's the accusation that Job brings. Uh, we see another one in the book of Zechariah. Um, and in chapter 3, there's this, again, a, a similar scene. There's uh, Joshua the high priest, who's standing... Before the angel of the Lord, it says in, in Zechariah 3 verse 1. And then what do we find? Lo and behold, Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. So another scene. There's Joshua the high priest representing all of God's people. And Joshua the high priest who is allowed to go into the most holy place in the temple. Joshua the high priest. His garments are filthy. There's the angel of the Lord. But there's also Satan standing at his right hand who's bringing an accusation. Now there's encouragement here because we see um, that Joshua the high priest is vindicated. But just staying with that main point, Satan, it would appear in the Old Testament, is allowed access into the presence of God to bring accusations. Well, let's return then to Revelation chapter 12 to see what has happened, to see crucially what has happened as a result of Jesus dying on the cross, being raised to new life, ascending to heaven, and now being seated on the throne of glory in heavenly places. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, verse 10 of chapter 12, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ, for the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. Satan has lost any kind of access to the courtroom of heaven where he has day and night been bringing accusation. What's the implication of that? His accusations are not heard by God. What Satan brings to accuse God's people, those accusations don't even register in heaven, as far as heaven is concerned, Satan's accusations don't even require a response. Because now has come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. Jesus has died. Jesus has shed his blood. And because of that blood... When we accept Jesus' forgiveness because of what he's done, no accusation stands. No accusation is heard. No accusation registers. Heaven pays no attention because it doesn't need to because of the blood and the victory of Jesus. So... When Romans 8 verse 1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's true. Because Satan has been defeated. And that blood cleanses us 
from all unrighteousness. Now that's not the same as saying, now that we're in Jesus, now that Jesus shed his blood, I am never personally in the wrong and my life is always faultless. You look surprised. Um, but it's true. <laughs> it, it, I, the, the blood of Jesus doesn't mean, the victory of God doesn't mean that when an accusation comes, my response is, that's not true. I personally, in my daily conduct, in everything I say, and in everything I do, and in everything I think, I'm perfect. I'm faultless. We are not without sin. Anyone who thinks he's without sin, anyone who thinks his conduct is perfect in that sense, is deceiving himself. But what there is none of is condemnation. So if Satan brings an accusation to me and he says, do you remember what you did? Do you remember what you've just done? Let me draw your attention back to the other day. When you lost your temper, or you gave in to some other temptation, or whatever it might be. My response is, no, that's not true. My response is, yes, the very worst is true of me. The very worst about me is true. But there is a but. But your accusations have been cast down. I'm a child of God, and the blood of Jesus has cleansed me from unrighteousness. And when I come to him and I acknowledge my sin, he forgives me and he purifies me. He's made me white. That's what the blood of Jesus does. And we've seen that in other chapters of Revelation as we've looked through. The blood of, uh, there's, there's a point at which the saints, it says, have, have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and made them white, made them spotless. White, the color of purity and also the color of victory. That's what the blood of Jesus does, totally cleanses. There are some stains, there were some marks, there was some muck, but it's been completely washed clean uh, by by Jesus. That's what the blood of Jesus does. So we are not condemned, we are not disqualified, we are not frowned upon. The war in heaven is over. The war is won. Satan has been hurled down. The accuser of our brothers, who accuses them day and night, has been hurled down. The war is over, but that doesn't mean there's not a battle that's still on. Satan is still active. He no longer has access in that way to the heavenly courtroom. He's been hurled down to earth. Heaven can rejoice, but there is actually some woe on the earth. He is still active. Um, It may have crossed your mind, it may not, but um, the kingdom of God, the Christian life, spiritual conflict in the Christian life, is not uh, the game of cricket. Uh, That may not have crossed your mind before now, um, but I'll just enlighten you. Um, The Christian life is not a game of cricket. Cricket is like a gentlemanly sport, isn't it? Or it should be, anyway. Traditionally, it has been. And so if, you, if you're in to bats and you know, actually, that you did hit the ball and it went through to the wicketkeeper and they caught it, um, but no one else seems to have realised that, but you know it happened, often the batsman will just turn around and walk off. I know I'm out. I concede 
that I lost my wicket. Um, and so they walk out. It's all very bravo. It's all kind of very gentlemanly and sportsmanlike. Um, well, the spiritual life is not like that. It's not that Satan now having lost goes, okay, okay, right. Well, I, I concede defeat. He knows he's defeated, um, but he's pursuing the woman even after the battle, has, even after the war has been won. Uh, John Hosier writing says, the Christian life is not like a battle, it is a battle. Satan knows that his days are numbered. He's like a wounded animal, but he's a wounded animal that is desperately thrashing about, still trying to do as much damage as he can before his ultimate fate is completely sealed. And so the world is still his sphere of operation. And therefore, since he is not inactive and he still brings accusations that register in here, if not in heaven, we need to be active also. And there is a battle for our minds. Paul writes, and he speaks of taking every thought captive. Uh, Peter writes, and he talks about be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, is prowling round like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He is completely defeated. He has no ultimate authority and he has no hope, um, but he's still on the prowl. He's still looking to bring accusations. Therefore, be controlled, be, self, be, be alert, be self-controlled, as Peter would say, as Paul would say, Take every thought captive. That's quite a strong phrase, isn't it? You know, if you take a person captive, you're doing something quite aggressive, actually. You're doing something quite um, strong and forceful. Uh, forgive the uh, illustration if this kind of sets your mind in the wrong direction. It's just an illustration. But imagine you arrive home to find that someone else is there, uh, sat on your couch, eating your food, um, watching your telly, wearing your pajamas, I don't know. And you think, who are you? What are you doing here? Wouldn't you kind of interrogate them a little bit? Who are you? Where have you come from? What are you doing here? Who do you represent? And unless, you know, you've slightly mistaken your... uh your parents or a long-lost relative who happens to have a key because you gave it to them, um, what you would then do on finding out is just grab hold of them, march them out of the house, and give them the welly. Um, you, but you would, wouldn't you? You wouldn't say, oh, uh, sorry, well, come in. Um, the fridge is over there, and um, we're going to be popping out again soon, but since you've made yourself at home... Uh, just stick around. Uh, there's a Grand Prix on later on or something. You know, whatever. You think, no, that's just ludicrous. You've got to take it captive. But I wonder, do we do that with our thoughts? Because there are thoughts that need to be interrogated. Where is this thought coming from? Where does it originate from? Is it coming from God, who might even want to convict me of sin and say, come on, you need to repent of this so that I can restore you because I've got a lot for you? Or is this thought coming from a place of darkness from an enemy who just wants to bring accusation and bring you down and say you're no good and that God has some, somehow abandoned you. Those thoughts need interrogating. 
Who are you? Where have you come from? Who do you represent? Whose side are you on? What are you doing here? What are your intentions? It needs interrogating. And then it needs booting out. And then invite some friends over. I mean, you can do that literally. Um, hospitality is no bad thing. But it's not, you know, kick out the bad thoughts. Welcome in the right ones. Focus on what's right. What has the blood of Jesus done for me? It means there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It means that I've been washed. I've been cleansed. I've been made new. What does it mean? It means I'm dearly loved. It means I'm a chosen one. It means I'm loved of heaven and I'm destined for glory. We want to get hold of truth that helps us then to see right. Then it becomes easier to see when someone knocks on the door metaphorically speaking, whether we let them in or not. Whether we let this thought in. Is it an accusing thought of worthlessness that's just going to lead us to misery? Or is it, you know, like I've said before, it, it could be that God wants to bring conviction of sin, but that never leads to condemnation. It never leads to a, sen- never leads to a sense of worthlessness. It never leads to a sense of, I'm just no good. It leads to a sense of, I need to get right, and when I confess this, I'm restored, and I'm still wearing white garments. I'm still God's family. So we need to overcome. We need to overcome with the blood of the Lamb and with the word of our testimony. We need to take what's true, not be passive, but be active and take thoughts captive. So far uh, from puzzling us, or even frightening us, this book... And this chapter are here to encourage us. They remind us of Jesus' total and complete victory over Satan. The war is over. The accuser has been cast down. Christ is victorious. And he is sitting on the throne of heaven. But there is still a battle on. There's still ground to be fought for. And that ground is in here, in our minds. So we need to be alert to the sometimes blatant but sometimes subtle schemes of the enemy, one of which is accusation. His purpose is to, is to condemn and discourage and render us weak and miserable. So we need to remember that in Christ, actually it's, it's us. We are the ones who are standing in victory because of what Jesus has done. Jesus is the one with power and authority in this situation. Satan is operating from a position of complete defeat. We are operating from a position of Christ's complete victory. The blood of Jesus has affected the greatest possible victory over darkness. But the question is, have we got hold of that? Is that reality for us right now? Are we succeeding in taking thoughts captive and understanding what our true position is. Let's pray.